Welcome to MI Live, a podcast from Macros Inc., where we talk about how to make your nutrition and fitness goals realistic, achievable, and sustainable. All right, let's get to the show. I forgot to hit the button. Oh, there we go. I did hit the button. It said no, I didn't. Now I did. So we missed our intro. <laughs> it's going to be a good day. <laughs> it is going to be a good day. Yeah, we have so- uh, We have a guest with us today who's... Okay. Now, I don't know if he's a guest or if he's just a reoccurring host at this point. It's a regular, series regular. Right. So, uh, for anybody listening for that dead, dead, dead space, welcome to MI Live Daily Nutrition Talk Show, where we also talk about fitness pretty much every day. So, it should be daily fitness and nutrition talk show. We'll so, go with that. T- today, we have with us again Dr. Mike stare um for anybody who has not heard mike mike is a fellowship trained physical therapist physical therapy educator physical uh personal trainer and nutritionist in the boston area he's the owner of uh orthopedics plus physical therapy and spectrum fitness consulting and he's wearing a hat for the first time and it's nerve-wracking <laughs> had to go catch today got my yeah. workout up next yeah. mike been a week how are you i'm doing great man how about you guys yeah, no sleep as we were just talking about before the show. So, you know, <laughs> it's been one of those weeks, but, uh, man, summer's finally here, at least where I'm at. So that's been kind of nice. Um, get, get out a little bit on the lake on the weekends, which has been a ton of fun. Just kind of recharge the batteries, but that's about it. Other than that, we're uh, forging full steam ahead over here. Nice. Yeah. It's been, been exciting. I don't know how the weather is in Boston and Chicago. It's been hot, 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 and then rain and then more hot. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, it's been Africa hot here, man. We've uh, about 95 and with golf on the first day of the year, it was a hundred degrees. So of course the, the one day I get out golfing, it's, it's uh Sahara like, but no, it's been great. It's been, I like the hot. Awesome. Brad, do you golf? Um, you have could you, call it that. You have golfed though. Attempted. Yes. I used to, <laughs> when I was a kid, I golfed a lot. Um, like I played probably three or four days a week as a kid. First but time I ever swung, first time I ever swung a club outside of a mini golf was la- was last year or the year before at a Top Golf, and uh, it was not pretty. And Lisa's a really good golfer, and she just made fun of me the entire entire time, and uh, <laughs> I refused to go back. It was horrible. When I when I when I was at the firehouse, we had a uh, a golf outing, and <clears throat> I took a I I didn't golf. I had no desire to, but I went, and I just drove the golf cart around, drank beer, and crashed into the water hazard. <laughs> <laughs> that Wait, sounds like that, that's the, not what normal golf is. Yeah, I, I thought it was. Then they asked me to leave. So. It's like a Caddyshack scene. <laughs> yeah, they asked me to leave, and they had like I don't know, like two hundred firemen who were like, "No, you can stay. He's fine. He's driving beer around for us." And then I got they, they, so they let let me made me leave, and then I just walked back in, just kept driving other carts. That's awesome. So, all right, guys. Well, let's get into it. So, our first topic today, uh, we're going to talk about knee pain. Knees are are creepy. Yeah, Mike, you you broke your knee, right? I uh, yeah, uh, I ruptured my patella tendon. Okay, um, which is probably the not a great thing to do for uh, long term knee health. Um, so, and I wish I could give you a great story about how it happened. You know that I was in a strongman competition and I had you know a thousand pound log on my back, or I was uh, racing to save some you know some kid falling off a cliff or something, but, uh, it was at a 4th of July party 
uh, in my flip flops playing horse with a bunch of old guys like myself. So, Isn't it really how, that's like every injury we get. Yeah. 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 My, my dad was a fireman for, I don't know, a long, long time. And at my, in eighth grade, he was playing basketball in the driveway with me and a friend and he, he broke his ankle playing basketball with an eighth grader. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I understand. I, I played hockey, played hockey most of my life. Fireman, my first serious injury, I tore my rotator cuff swimming. So yeah, we all do. We all have awesome ones. Yeah, it, it is interesting though. I I had a, uh, a a suspicion is most people, most patients when they come in with some type of trauma like that, they say, you know, my knee had been giving me problems on and off for a few years. I really never changed much or I modified this. There's always a history behind it that you just kind of, you know, blow off. Um, I was getting ready for a powerlifting meet and my knee was starting to kill me. And I said, you know what, I'm going to skip this whole thing. And then six months later, I decided, you know, show off while I'm uh, at a party and there it goes. So, Oof. yeah, it no. wasn't fun. No. Now, it, when you say you had pain, so I always have... I've never had a knee injury knock on wood. Well, I had a nail go through my knee once, but I've never had like a real like debility. I was crawling on the ground in a fire and a nail went through my knee, Brad. I saw that look. The uh, So knock on wood, I don't have any wood around me, but I, uh, I've i never had a real knee injury, but I always get this nagging pain in the back of my knee every once in a while. And like to the point where I, I don't, I can't walk for like, I can walk, but I can't walk with without pain for like a day or two. And then it goes away for, for six months and comes back for a day or two. I always think I'm going to tear my meniscus. Well, if by all odds, you know, as an active person who's north of, you know, 30, uh, um, watch your mouth. What's that? Watch your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I don't want to infer that you're active. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Uh, the odds are that is that you have a meniscus tear. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, the majority of people do. The prevalence okay. of meniscal tears in asymptomatic people is is staggering. Um, so so yeah, in all likelihood, you do have a tear, and uh, it may not matter. Will it repair on its own? You know. Most studies up until one I came across in 2005 had said that there's no capacity for meniscus repair. Uh, There's some debate in younger people because Mm. there is in the periphery of the meniscus a blood supply, and that tends to go away, um, usually just after maturity going into like your teens and and 30s that there's no our 20s there's no blood supply so Mm -hmm. that's why when orthoscopic surgeries used to take place more commonly in the 90s um, they would distinguish between a meniscal repair and a meniscectomy Mm -hmm. so meniscectomy is when there's a little bit of a a nick in the in the meniscus so they just take a burr they shave that orthoscopically and people within four to six weeks are back to normal a meniscal repair is when they try to suture the meniscus, preserve the integrity of the meniscus. The idea is that you don't want to take away meniscus because over time you're going to be reducing meniscus in general just with aging. So you want to preserve it. And if there's a blood supply, there's a likelihood that it will heal. So therefore they suture it. But that rehab after that, I mean, people are immobilized for six to eight weeks. It's a very extensive rehab. Um, 
But uh, so there was one study that showed that exercise might actually facilitate some cartilage repair. Um, whether that's clinically meaningful or not is still debated. So, um, so in short, they were changing the post-operative protocol based on that research saying that maybe we can actually hasten the recovery of the meniscus by getting them moving sooner and earlier. Um, and that tends to trend well with the observations that people who are generally sedentary um, have a much higher degree of arthritis uh, over time compared to people who are active. So in short, uh, it seems like you can regenerate to some extent, but what's even more interesting is that there's not a strong correlation between knee pain and the degree by which the meniscus is degenerated. So, um, so yeah. You didn't give me anything very hopeful to look forward to in any of that. Basically <laughs> your knee's going to fall off is all I heard. No, 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 no. It, uh, I, I would take from that. If you have meniscal damage, uh, it might still be something that you can recover from and be active and pain-free. Uh, movement is probably going to be something that if there is a capacity for it to regenerate, yeah. um, that will help it. Um, otherwise, it, it, based on the evidence in long, uh, longitudinal studies, there's a likelihood that it will uh, prevent the degree by which it degenerates further. Okay. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I've noticed that it gets, it gets worse if I'm not lifting, if I'm not squatting regularly, if I'm not working legs regularly, if I take time off, uh, the frequency in which I have pain increases the less I exercise. There's a, there's a, the concept that constantly just comes through in scenarios like that, what you're talking about is, is the Goldilocks zone. You know, if I start squatting north of 400 pounds, my knees feel like awful. Uh -huh. If I don't squat uh, for a couple of weeks, my knees feel awful. Uh, yeah. There seems to be, yeah, and it changes, of course, based on, you know, your fitness level and, right. and, and whatnot. But uh, there seems to be a level where I, I feel good, where I'm moving. And I see this from patients all the time. They rest and they actually end up feeling worse. Mm -hmm. They say, screw it. You know, I got a competition come up or I got some type of uh, race coming up or I got to lose some weight. And they just push, push, push. It, it gets worse. So, hmm, uh, interesting. A common phenomenon I find in rehab too. Huh. So, I like this. So, when we think about just kind of the general average person who's got you know quote unquote knee pain, would you say for most of those people, it's it's like tendon issues, like patellar tendon issues or quadricep tendon issues, um, like maybe meniscal issues or some sort of um, like structural pieces or is it like a movement pattern problem that's kind of causing that or is it just general overuse? Yeah, I, I think probably I, I try to stay away. I'm trying as hard as I can to stay away from the term overuse because when I think you and I say overuse, we're thinking that um, there is a disproportionate volume relative to our recovery or relative to our abilities. I think what most people hear when they say overuse is you're doing too much activity. Yeah. So they would say, oh, a marathoner, you know, that's overuse. They're just abusing their knees. Well, not for somebody who has been steadily and repeatedly and gradually over years building up the capacity to be able to tolerate that. Similarly, somebody who's been squatting with you know, excellent mechanics and, you know, with a sound, reasonable program over 20, 30 years uh, squatting 300 pounds may not be overuse. Um, so what I tend to uh, categorize it is that it is uh, too great of a rate of progression relative to recovery. 
and I know that doesn't have a, a concise ring to it, but um, I would say that would be the scenario that's the problem. So, for example, somebody who has been um, out of running, for example, for six, eight months, the weather starts turning nice. You know, out here in New England, you get about a three-month window where it's actually, you know, great weather to run. And people say, you know what, I'm going to go back to my prior running routine. So after a period of two weeks, they go from nothing to running, you know, their 20, 30-mile routine. Uh, that's probably more of the problem that I see, whether it be a tendon problem, meniscus problem, a mechanics problem, a patellofemoral pain problem, a general arthritis problem. The rate of progression is just too quick. Um so as far as what I typically see, um, I think tendon problems tend to be more athletic populations and younger populations when it comes to the knee. Um, meniscal problems tend to be um, people that are um, usually overweight or have had some prior trauma, like an ACL issue, and, and haven't properly uh, rehabbed it. Um, I think central to all those issues, there's motor control problems, so poor mechanics. Um, and of those, the most common ones I see are deficits at the hip and deficits at the ankle, um, restricted mobility and dorsiflexion at the ankle, um, weakness in the lateral hip muscles. Um, of course, everyone's unique, but as far as a generalization, that's the pattern I, I tend to see. Um, the, so real quick, sorry, Brad. The, I just want to stop. So there's a... <clears throat> It, it seems that it's more of a the ratio of working out to recovery is just out of whack for most people. Uh, well, activity. So yeah, Activ sorry, yeah, activity, activity to recovery. That that yeah. ratio of time is just disproportionate for most people. Exactly, it's not the absolute amount, yeah. uh, and that's where people get confused because they say, "Well, overuse. I don't want to do too much and break down my knee." It's like, no, no, you can get your knee to accomplish m amazing things. Mm -hmm. But it's the it's the ratio and the speed of increasing the activity that tends to really sabotage uh, people's balance between I want to be active, but I don't mm -hmm. want to hurt. That makes sense. But it's, it's inappropriate loading both in magnitude and like location almost like if you have poor mechanics, you're loading incorrectly and you're doing too much relative to what you should be. Right. Yeah. And, and you bring up a good distinction there. You know, magnitude, um, location, um, and, and frequency. So I'll go over two interesting things that I think will help people in figuring out like activities. So they've shown that when you sprint, for example, the magnitude of force that you apply on a knee is greatly, you know, increased the harder and the faster you sprint. Yet there's a, a clear trend that if you look at uh, knee pain and uh, structural changes at the knee in sprinters versus uh, long distance runners, um, long distance runners, you know, that have pain tend to have a lot more pain when they run longer distance compared to sprinters. Um, so the idea is, that, well, this doesn't make any sense. Sprinting has more loading, mm -hmm. dramatically more loading. So why are they not in more pain? And you take a, a, the amount of strides and multiply it by the force per stride, and the magnitude of accumulated force is far greater in a long-distance runner compared to a sprinter. So that's why you can't say heavy lifting puts a huge amount of load on the knee 
and therefore it's bad for the knee. Um, it's not that simple. Sometimes it's the uh, repeated small um, amplitude of force repeated at a high level that can be equally or if not more so deleterious to a knee. Um, and the other thing that you said that was interesting is, is the, um, I think you said it as the, uh, um, the location of the force. So have you guys heard of people that um, do McConnell taping for kneecap pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The idea was that they were going to realign somebody's knee and you can put the kneecap in a better position. So what they found is that when they went through provocative tests, so almost every time someone complains of kneecap pain, it's usually with stairs going down a step. So they reproduced their pain going down a step, and then they put the tape on, and they found that the pain significantly reduced. So they thought that what they had done with the tape is they relocated the position of the knee. They did dynamic MRI of the kneecap, and they found there was no change in the kneecap. It, it, stayed, it didn't mechanically alter, which makes sense. I mean... The idea that you can take a piece of tape and you can pull a kneecap and alter the mechanics of the knee with a piece of tape is pretty crazy. So um, what they did show, however, is that in some cases uh, the pain was less. And one of the things that they think might have been going on is that they were able to distribute the load across a greater surface area. So the magnitude of load, instead of being all positioned on one area, it was positioned the kneecap became more flush with the trochlear groove. So you distribute the force over a greater surface area. Um, that still is being elucidated, so is that the mechanism? But um, yeah, I think that's kind of a cool way to think of this is it's not so much um, you know, how much load, it's how you're distributing the load. Yeah, and there's a, uh, I threw up a, I hit the wrong, couldn't get into a separate tab, but now I do. Um, there's a picture up on the screen for anybody who's listening to the podcast that shows it. That's why you should watch the the live stream. Um, <clears throat> so these are obviously three different ways to distribute the load, Mike? Uh, yeah, and I mean, theoretically, exactly. And there's certainly another mechanism that might be at play is uh, more of a proprioceptive, you know, feedback. That explains why sometimes... Uh, having, um, you know, ankle braces or orthotics that don't change mechanics, mm-hmm. um, do change symptoms. So, uh, we're not, we're not really sure. Um, you know, what's interesting is that the burden of proof is pretty small because the risk is incredibly low. Like what happens if taping doesn't work? Yeah. Well, someone's going to pull the hair off the kneecap. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the biggest risk, you know? Um, yeah. by the this- way, guys, if you're going to do this, definitely shave your knee um i've yep. learned that the hard way what, what if you used vet wrap what's, what's it, it called vet wrap it's it's made so we use it for our horse uh we we actually my wife and i were actually just having a conversation about this exact thing because he has arthritis now um so she's wrapping his starting for he's 32 so she's oh, starting yeah it's like coban yeah yeah didn't you have that on in one of our yeah options? yeah on my arm she put it on my arm the day she got it for him yeah so, but it doesn't, it doesn't take the hair off. It just, it sticks yeah. to itself and won't stick to anything else. Can you, um, is it, uh, is it just circumferential? It's like a compressive wrap? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 That's interesting. I, I, I don't know if the mechanical properties of that would be, you know, similar to the, the tensile force of tape or not, but um, yeah, that'd be an interesting thing to play around with. It's a self-adherent, 
self-adherent cohesive bandage tape for dogs, cats, small animals, large pets, and horses. But they do make it for people because I used to we used to carry it on an ambulance. Yeah. Oh, cool. So it is. It, I think I think it's amazing, and you can. It, it's pretty elastic, so you can stretch it pretty and put it on pretty tight. I used to. If I remember, I was an athletic trainer in a student trainer in high school, and I I, I swore we we used it then, but that was twenty years ago. So maybe I'm just crazy and not remembering it right. Hmm. So I usually put. Um, if if you're going to do this taping mechanism, it's actually easy to do. Um, it, it doesn't take a lot to learn, but the the main things I tell people they're going to try it out. A, shade your knee because it gives the tape something here to. Um, you can get this at CVS, Walgreens, uh, a white, it's called cover roll. Mm-hmm. So you put that as the first layer. Uh, oh, and by the way, another way to get it to stick better is if you take old school hairspray, like Aquanet, a la yeah. 1995 or so, and uh, spray that on there. It's it's like your own little adherent there. So put the cover roll on and then Luco tape. Uh, that's the brown tape that was pictured in that graphic you put there. That stuff is super strong. Um, it's not great to go right on skin, though, because it'll pull some of your skin off, too. But um, <laughs> those, are the, uh, those are the three, you know, four little things you can, you can do to make it more effective. Awesome. So is there, is there one wrapping technique that you is – the, is the McConnell wrap the, the technique you prefer, or is there a different – yeah, there, there's a few different strategies of McConnell taping that you can use. In fact, she's got a whole manual about it. Um, but I re- prefer the most simple because patients won't be able to do the most intricate ones usually. So just because it takes so much time and it's hard to do on yourself. Uh, the simplest one is uh, where you just do a, um, you know, a lateral, you know, um, or, or a medial uh, glide essentially. So in essence, you just uh, take two pieces of tape. One, you pull the kneecap over, and then the other, you go from the outside of the knee to the inside of the knee. Um, so it's the uh, it's a medial glide. You don't have to work on tilting the patella. You don't have to have another pair of hands to manipulate your knee. Mm-hmm. It's super simple to do. Um, and, uh, I mean, if you look up medial glide McConnell taping, there's probably YouTube videos about how to do it. Yeah, so it's McCon- for anybody on the podcast, it's McConnell taping, M-C-C-O-N-N-E-L. Mm-hmm. M-C-C-O-N-N-E-L, McConnell taping. And it's temporary, by the way. So, you know, it people can usually have it on for anywhere from six hours to a day. Uh, I rarely see it last more than two days. It takes about five minutes to do, if that. Perfect. That's interesting. Thank you for that, Mike. Let's. Yep. You, you guys ready for some uh, questions before we head into the next section of this? Or, Mike, did you have anything else you want to add? No, no, no. Let's questions are great. All right. Brad, anything you want to add first? Nope, let's do it. All right. Brad, your hair's on point today. I will give you that. Yeah, my hair is wild. I like it. I need a haircut. It's getting out of control. All right. Uh, Woody says she's eight to 10 hours ahead of us, so it's been a pretty good day so far. Well, yeah. I feel like I've been up for eight to 10 hours already, and it's only 9.30 in the morning here. Um, Coach Aesthetics, I made my mind to apply for the CNC exam due to your recommendation, Brad. Uh, he also wanted to know which do you think is better, a PN level one or the NASM CNC? Brad, which do you think is better, the course you designed or somebody else's course? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am not biased at all, so I'll say the CNC. Um, yeah. The thing is, just to be honest, they're, they're very different. Yeah. Um, like in their scope and in their flavor, they're very different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I went through PN one. Um, a, a while ago. Um, and I did not go through the CNC course, but I read the book. 
um, and look through. I went through it, but I didn't take the certification. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I personally would pick the CNC course, but I'm also extremely biased in that. But PN, <laughs> PN's not, you know, PN's, PN has a lot of solid information in it. Um, but I think that the, for the average practitioner, for the average personal trainer, average person with working with, with clients that the CN, NASM CNC is the absolute way to go first. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Right. You can, it's like, you can always read more than one textbook on a topic. Yep. Agreed. You don't have, you don't have to read one and then call then it. You mastered it. <laughs> say your career's done learning. Okay. I'll do that. I had a coach who did that. Did I ever tell you that? The first coach I ever worked with, he told me that he, he was like 30. He's like, dude, I read all the books I ever need to in college. I don't need to read that. And then he gave me a meal plan for chicken and tilapia every day. And then when I was in my, then during the day of my bodybuilding show, when he told me he would video chat with me, he was on a cruise and had no cell service. Dude, I, he's my arch, he's I my will arch never, enemy in fitness. ever go on a cruise. No, never. Seems it's just like scary. a Petri dish. Mike, you seem like a cruise guy. <laughs> no, no. I so did that once. Shuffleboard yeah. and board, shuffleboard and those real short board shorts. <laughs> yep tank tops too uh yeah. no not my scene i did it once and uh i think that might be the last yeah it just doesn't seem i'd rather go on like like get like eight friends and rent a private boat for like four days like go out seems more fun yes. and that way i don't have to deal with screaming children yeah. yes because that way they're yours and you can throw them off the side <laughs> oh my God. what liam can swim it's not it's not a problem and it's international waters brad no rules Right. Um, is there a specific time for the podcast to start? I'll schedule to log in every day according because the content is so valuable and information. Big fan of Brad, sir. <laughs> Forget you. We're not even answering your question anymore. We don't like Brad. Brad, uh, look at the big brain on Brad. Look at the big ego Monday, on Brad now. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 7 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Central, 4 a.m. Hawaii time. Yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the same time we started today. So whatever time that is your local time, you post that comment at nine Oh nine AM. We started nine minutes before in Chicago. Yep. Uh, Dante, our regular Dante said, good vibes. Um, what are, this is a related, but off topic question from uh, coach aesthetics is still, still what are some of the most common reasons for scoliosis and who should an individual suffering from scoliosis consult a physiotherapist or an orthopedician? Is that a word at the end? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't know. I think, is that a specialty? I think they meant orthopedic. Okay, that's what I thought. I was. I was making sure it wasn't some specialty term that I wasn't familiar with. Um, I, scoliosis is just genetic, isn't it? Not necessarily. Actually, oh. we're not. So um, I've invested a lot of time in this for two reasons. Um, one, uh, a business partner of mine is actually uh, probably. The, at least the country's foremost authority in scoliosis. Um, all you know, the major um, you know uh, outlets from orthopedics to Children's Hospital to you know therapists um, you know, go through her course. Um, the other is that my daughter um, has severe scoliosis, and uh, she grew seven inches this year, and her scoliosis went from ten degrees about thirty-two. So. Research all over the country about this, and there's a lot of debate about how to treat this. Um, but without going into all that, um, Coach, what I what I tell you to check into is um, there are two types of bracing, and they're all actually well, one's based in Spain and one's based in Boston, right out here at Boston Children's. Um, so there's a lot of information on this. In, in fact, you know, uh, if you want, uh, Brad posts in the show notes, like that, my email for uh, for Coach. Uh, 
because I could give you a lot of info uh, on this. But the summary of it is, is that um, if you have a, um, a great physical therapist that only specializes in this, I'd strongly recommend it. Uh, in my daughter's case, it just so happened that this uh, option is uh, 30 minutes from my house, but I would have flown across the country for it. Um, there's um, uh, what's called the Schroth method. Um, it's S-C-H-R-O-T-H. Um, it is uh, mostly based out of Spain, um, but it's very prevalent now on the East Coast and spreading out to some parts of California, too. The treatments on scoliosis that they're getting is remarkable. The prior treatment was to use a Boston brace, which is using a tubing. And the idea is that you're only going to prevent the progression. Um, Schroth method has shown evidence that they can um, reverse uh, the curvature to some extent. And the likelihood that it progresses to surgery is substantially less based on a, a recent randomized control study compared to people that are managed through Boston bracing and wait and see. So um, there are not many orthopedists that are familiar with this. Um, and um, you're going to get two very large and diverse conflicting uh, views on how to manage scoliosis. One is it's benign. Don't worry about it unless it gets to a 40 degree curvature and then we'll do surgery. The other is, yeah, treat it, treat it aggressively. Um, you can prevent it from progressing. You may be able to uh, actually cause it to regress. And um, there are definitely active treatments that need to be done, not just management through a brace, but also management through um, motor control about how you use your muscles to uh, keep your, um, your your spine position and optimal position. And also the other benefit, by the way, this to wrap that up is um, there's a lot of myths about what you can and can't do with scoliosis. You shouldn't lift weights. You shouldn't play sports, um, you know, a whole host of them. So, and it's different based on whether you're skeletally immature, like my daughter, 14, or if you're dealing with a 60 year old. So, um, I have a really, really good resource that I could pass along, um, and uh, her name's Amy Sibley. Um, she's actually linked with our practice. Um, couldn't speak highly, uh, more highly of her approach and how well it's researched, but also I would have never known about it if I wasn't a physical therapist. Um, so, um, yeah, if you want to reach out to me a little bit more and discuss your case a little bit more, I'd be happy to give you some info. Yeah, and there's also Lamar Grant is up. A- Powerlifter uh, who had horrible, horrible scoliosis, who's pretty pretty famous. There's also a world record holder powerlifter. He has a, it allows him to maybe he had spina bifida. I believe he had scoliosis though, but he was able to get a really good arch on his bench and would only have to move the barbell like an inch. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, and, and he set a couple of world records with it. So interesting, t- interesting that we got on this. This was a right fascinating subtopic. So if I guess my question are. In the cases where it is maybe correct, correctable through exercises, that would make me think it's probably not a structural issue. Um, it's probably more like muscular control. So what are kind of the major causes of, of I guess, treatable scoliosis from like a physical therapy, exercise, neuromuscular control change standpoint? Yeah, in short, we don't know. Um, we don't know why it happens. Um, it, it is not, it doesn't seem to be familial, um, at least in, in, in a lot of cases that they've looked at, certainly it's not in any of ours. I mean, we have a huge, huge family from generations and we have no indices of, of that. And it's happened with my daughter. So um, 
as far as what causes and is it to what degree is it fixable? Um, they have looked at scoliosis as purely a structural phenomenon. Um, it's a right to left curvature and we need to push it this way and that way. And that will reorientate it. Uh, that is not a, how it is. It is a three dimensional problem. It is both a rotational and a lateral uh, curvature. Uh, in fact, there's movements in all planes. Um, why it develops, how it develops, we have no idea why. Um, how to correct it, um, again, some static structural things are, are key. Um, but from a neuromuscular component, um, how we engage in, in utilizing our muscles um, can acutely change it, uh, meaning that you can have somebody, you can take an x-ray of somebody in a one posture, and then you can cue them about how to um, control their position. And you can literally see their height change measurably in x-ray, and you can actually see the curvature change. So that degree by which it's modifiable is more related to um, how um, whether they have a, a flexible curvature or a static curvature. And the flexible curvature is more common in younger people. Um, you're dealing with the 67 year old, your likelihood of modifying that significantly. So if they have a 30 degree curvature when they're 60, um, when they're 70, they're probably gonna have a 30 degree curvature. You know, if you're 12 and you have a 30 degree curvature, there's a good likelihood you can uh, bring it to a 22 degree curvature or even a 20 degree curvature. Um, so the exercises are more are less stretching and strengthening and they're more um, uh, position modification. Uh, the analogy I give, it would be like the difference between um, throwing punches with your wrist like this versus throwing them like this. You know, you can strengthen all you want and get giant forearms since it's not going to make you throw a punch, you know, without your wrist bent. Your brain has to sense what position you're in and be able to determine, okay, this is the strong position. So it seems it's more of a, a motor control phenomenon than a let's get them stronger here. Let's get them, you know, stretched out there. Interesting. That is, the whole thing was interesting. I got, scoliosis is one of those things that I'm not super familiar with, but I just, it's it's fascinating just working as a paramedic it's it's one of those things you see later in life especially people who were you know in their 70s 80s not treated with any of modern techniques who have not great quality of life so they have uh, a lot of mobility problems and <clears throat> trying to trying to move them out of beds and stuff was just always you always felt bad like just you didn't know if you were causing pain if anything like that Interesting. I also got a Boston brace once as a white elephant gift on Christmas, um, which I which I still have, saving it for when Macros Inc. does one, so I can give it to Brad. <laughs> it, it, it was it was for like a. It, it, I mean, it's huge. It, it was clearly for a bariatric patient. I mean, it's I could fit two, probably all three of us in it. Um, yeah. it, it. It's huge. So it's in my garage waiting for you, Brad. I'm very excited about this. Mm -hmm. You just you just conjured up a very interesting image. <laughs> yeah, it's it, 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 I have it. So it's it's obvious. It's really the only reason I kept it and, and even brought it up. It's really old. I mean, it is. It's it's got to be from the forties. And the, the awesome. yeah, it's it's I like. I'm afraid to move it sometimes. And why am I keeping it? I have no idea. But I like old stuff, and it's just in my garage in a box that I'm never going to touch. But it's it's kind of neat to have like an old medical device laying around that you're just like, hey, here's a custom made. Boston brace from like the, the forties or fifties that just to show you, I also have a set of leg braces from the fifties that are really old that I, that I found at a garage sale once hmm. I have weird things. Um, so, 
So let's uh, let's keep going. The next one is um, we had a question on a previous live from Dante uh, in regards to previous live. Then diet breaks. How long? How um, then diet breaks do help long term weight loss and retention of such weight loss that we can say, but. Can we say it's because a meta- of a metabolic reset? I understood that we can't, but someone pointed out to me that I might be wrong. So now I'm not sure. What is OMAD? That's one meal a day. Um, so does OMAD have any benefits to weight loss compared to regular diets? Does it have health, longevity benefits, or is it a tool like IF? OMAD would just be a tool like IF. It's one meal a day, um, and that would just be fasting. Brad, do you, have, do you want to comment on the uh, the diet break piece? The diet break, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there's kind of two pieces. One is the the larger benefit of the diet break piece is generally from adherence. Um, I think we've seen that from several of the studies that have utilized that. The largest one was the Matador study. Um, the way that was structured is there's really no like metabolic reset, quote unquote, um, benefit just due to the nature of the design of that study. It was more just adherence um, over time. There are some some benefits to if you have long periods of, of caloric restriction with if you have intermittent higher caloric intake for some of the metabolic aspects, but it's mostly uh, adherence based. So, uh, somebody asked, "Is this just something that we have to learn to live with?" Then I have this is referring back to knee pain that we were talking about thirty seven minutes ago. Uh, is this just something that we have to live with? Then I have a brace or use a mechanical taping, but for two years now, nothing is changing. Only relief is from cortisone. Yeah, uh, in my experience, most people are able to modify the pain through uh, changing their 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 activity and through um, through changing their, their movement quality. So what I mean by change your activity, uh, not necessarily the same restricting doing certain activities, but how they do them. Um, I get a lot of people back to squatting. Um, one example, one way I do that, um, I focus a lot on box squats to try to emphasize more of a hip dominant pattern. Um, I find with a lot of people with knee pain um, and doing things like squatting or even stepping, is that the ratio of knee flexion compared to hip flexion is significantly um, higher. And when we reverse that ratio, not reverse it, but modify that, um, there tends to be a significant relief in some of the symptoms. Interestingly enough, when we see relief of the symptoms, it changes their motor patterns because the brain quickly adjusts to a a pain-relieving versus a pain-provoking activity. And interesting enough, in relation to that is that the second part is improving their knee mechanics seems to be mostly related to um, lateral hip strengthening. Um, Chris Powers out of, uh, I believe it's USC, and several of the researchers have sh- seen some good correlations with lateral hip strength and modifying mechanics and anterior knee pain. So on both those fronts, I find that um, uh, there's a lot of success in um, relieving that. So I would not just, um, if you're finding, you know, it's been two years, you've tried cortisone, you've tried taping, and it hasn't helped. My expectation for taping helping is relatively low unless it's done in combination with um, other treatments, such as hip strengthening, modifying knee mechanics, and then making sure that the load progressions um, in your workout are, are appropriate. Um, 
So that's usually where I've seen most success, um, emphasizing strongly hamstring, glute strengthening, um, minimizing anterior knee dominant movements um, so that they are, are getting adequate hip contributions to the movements. Um, so no, don't give up on that. Uh, I've seen people take five, six years to figure out the right therapy that works for them. Um, don't just accept that pain's a normal part of your your day to day life. Um, usually, I always tell people respect pain. You know, you can learn from it. Um, don't relegate yourself to just being in pain. Um, there's probably other approaches that you haven't explored yet. Um, there's just too much success out there to, you know, say, ah, this is what's going to be. You're 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 very detailed, uh, and I like it. <laughs> like so this, all your, you never leave me with questions. This might be a good segue into the next yep. topic. Well, first we Dante said big fan of big fan of Brad Dieter. So Dante, you're banned too. Um, one day somebody will be a fan of me, but next I'm sure we're gonna have fans of Mike, and then everybody will be like, I won't be here, and everybody will say this is the best show ever. And but see that that's what you want is you want things to carry on with without you so you you could be like on the beach sipping pina coladas while we're here working what part of me makes you think i like the beach i'm just i was just making up something oh. i do like pina coladas though the fruit you'll, you'll the be better. in your basement counting coins there you go there you go that's the uh that's i just i just ordered a new 1936 uh qu- 1937 quarter brad they're and all they're- medical devices too yeah yeah no th- those aren't collecting those are just random assortments of things the uh yeah. But the, but the quarters are real. So, yeah, we'll jump into our next topic, uh, which, if I can find it, is treatment for injuries. Um, and one of the ones Brad had mes- mentioned to me yesterday was uh, biological treatments with PRP. So, Brad, you want to explain real quick? Yes. Um, so this is kind of a broader topic, and I kind of just wanted to just introduce the idea and see what Mike's thoughts are. So I know over the last several decades, there's kind of been a big push into kind of the biological treatment space. Um, Some of that involves things like PRP injections, right, which are plasma-rich platelets. Um, There's this very loose term thrown around of stem cells. Um, Like my dad's in orthopedics and they say they do stem cell injections. And I'm like, well, are they actually stem cells or are they just mesenchymal cells? And we get in dinner arguments about it. Um, but like, so there's, there's this whole host of now biological treatments that are being used. Um, and I don't know if we have a ton of long-term data on the efficacy of these and, and, and how well they actually work. So I just kind of love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, some of kind of the big canonical biological treatments that we currently use for orthopedic stuff. Yeah, I, I was just looking at this in the context of injections in general for yeah. um, rotator cuff tendon issues. And one interesting thing in, in looking at that and finding, first of all, is that when you're looking at PRP, and, and the idea is that you're, the ratio of uh, platelets um, in, the, um, in the injectable is far greater than you'd find in whole um, blood. And the idea behind that is that it activates proteins that help facilitate uh, tissue remodeling and repair. Um, so what, what's interesting in, in looking at the studies, it seems like it's tendon specific. And I found this, by the way, for loading parameters, for responses to cortisone, to even basic therapies, meaning that the Achilles tendon has a different response than the patella tendon, than the um, uh, lateral tendons of the elbow, the extensor tendons, than the rotator cuff tendons. 
So when you're looking to generalize the effectiveness of one versus the other, I, I think we have to take that into account. Um, as far as uh, the research on it and its efficacy, uh, one of my patients was getting ready, ready for um, considering going uh, into the NFL and he was getting ready for the combine. And he sought me out because he had a partially torn patella tendon. Uh, he knew if he got surgery on it, that would be pretty much his end of his chances. Um, but he could still play. So he was debating whether he just goes to therapy or he gets an injectable. So we looked at all the evidence and the long and the short of it is that uh, the evidence wasn't strong enough to make any conclusive uh, decisions. Uh, we were unaware of any risks other than the monetary cost because insurance will cover it. Um, the efficacy is all over the place from non-effective to effective relative to other injections. But in my research, I have not found one study that looked at comparing it to a load management process versus a injectable versus a control. Um, the last review, I think it was Lynn in 2018, that was a meta-analysis, pretty much concluded that there may be a, um, a non-significant uh, benefit, but they couldn't make strong conclusions. Even though it was a meta, the size of the groups were too small. The, what they were using for plasma wasn't consistent, um, meaning that the ratio of how much um, platelets were in the, um, uh, the plasma injected was not consistent. Um, it was multiple tendons and it was different populations. So in short, we don't know. Um, one uh, of the most prominent researchers, Jill Cook in tendon pathology has actually postulated that it might actually be deleterious in that by crowding the tendon with more, uh, uh, more cellular components, uh, that actually might change the ratio of cell to cell matrix that is ideal for healing. Because when you have a pathological cell uh, or tendon, there's more tenocytes and you might be crowding it with more material. So I've never heard that perspective, but I defer to her when it comes to tendon pathology because she's probably one of the most well-read experts in that. Um, so it sounds promising in theory. I, I just haven't, you would think by now, uh, I mean, the research has been out for well over a decade. You'd think there'd be better design studies and more promise. Um, so far, I can't find any of it. So if somebody comes to me asking to do it, I'd say, you know, unless you have money to burn, um, I, I wouldn't invest in it. And if you did, I wouldn't have strong expectations. So um, a couple couple thoughts and questions on just as a follow-up, and these are in no particular order. Um, if, if it does appear that there may be some, like, tendon or location-specific, do you think any of that has to do with um, either the – kind of composition and structure. I mean, your Achilles tendon has different, you know, elastin and collagen makeup and properties than your patellar tendon, than, you know, your, your, some of the stuff in your elbow. Um, do you think that has anything to do with it or is it more just the way those specific tendons respond to load or vascularization or kind of what do you think might be driving the location specific response? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I do notice that, you know, there's a big difference in the in the magnitude of, of load capacity, meaning that you could disrupt a patella tendon by a third of its load capacity, and it still has a more than enough load capacity to do day-to-day -day tasks. You do the same thing for a, a supraspinatus in the shoulder, 
or a common extensor tendon in the elbow, and that might be now you can't function. Yeah. You know, so I think that might be part of it. I think if uh, you know, not necessarily looking at the biology of it, but looking at the outcomes, I think that's a big difference. I think a lot of people um, or a lot of the studies are not being consistent about what they consider success. I think some are saying whether there is a morphological change in the tendon. Some are saying, are they symptomatic? And some are saying, what is their function? And to assume that those are all the same thing has been disproven. Um, for example, they've shown in studies that after 12 weeks of loading, many tendons can be asymptomatic, even though there's been no structural change to the tendon. It can take more like 12 months or 24 months for the structural change to occur. So I'd be very interested in studies that would look at placebo versus uh, you know, PRP um, in purely symptoms. Because I think the expectation that you're going to see morphological change in the tendon is in a 12-week study is going to be very low. Um, and based on tendon loading models, uh, it takes far longer than that to see the tendon remodel. So then for the the people who have these, you know, like they get these injections and like, man, it fixed all my problems. Um, how much of that do you think is maybe psychosomatic or placebo, or there are some people just have massive beneficial responses to this stuff? Uh, I, I would say it's, it's gotta be a huge psychosomatic component of it. Uh, the literature is all over uh, replete with examples of that. We were talking about that. I think a couple yeah. podcasts ago about the sham, you know, surgeries even um, there is, so much, so many examples um, in physical therapy, in medicine, in uh, chiropractic, in acupuncture, Reiki, whatever, where you create an environment, um, a, uh, an, env- a, an expectation, uh, some type of, you know, mystique behind, you know, the care, and you create a fertile ground for having very good outcomes. Um, so, I think that can be manipulated to, um, you know, the detriment of people, but I think it can also be manipulated to help people too, you know? Um, so it's an interesting thing. I kind of waffle between being very opinionated saying, you know, the evidence doesn't support this. This is not a great thing to, it might actually help people a lot if you, and that's where, I mean, prolotherapy is interesting. You know, that's essentially just sugar water being injected into, you know, a tendon. So it'd be interesting to see. I, I really think there should be better, more well-designed studies on this that have far longer follow-ups too, by the way. Most of the ones I found, it's six months or six weeks, 12 weeks. I mean, we need studies that follow up a year, you know, or two years later. When, it, it, interesting, when Brad said this yesterday, it, it was something that I'm interested in. My dog was a, I have a, my German Shepherd was a trained search and rescue dog. And when she was three, right, right right after we finished our training, she tore her ACL. Um, and I went to a, she was only three. So I wanted to treat it, went to a bunch of specialists. None of the options were, were viable for me. Found one specialist who did something called a tie-in method where they put two Kevlar ropes to hold their joint together, uh, completely sever the ACL and MCL. And well, it's a different, it's not an MCL, it's equivalent of an MCL. They completely sever them and their joints held together with Kevlar. And <clears throat> through all of it, and this guy invented the technique. Um, it's, it's a, widely accepted technique, really good for dogs. Um, and one of the things I asked him, which had been recommended to me was PRP. And he, 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 what he said, 
he, he right he said we could try it this this and this um but for my dog's tear which he showed me the all everything it was a, it was a bad tear i mean she couldn't walk anymore but i had a couple friends who did go to him later on people i referred to him uh, and he put them on prp and all of their dogs had significant recovery with it um to the point where they they could they they're full active they get the prp treatments regularly still um, so it's, you know, cheaper than a, than a $5,000, uh, $5,000 ACL replacement. It's like a hundred dollars, I think every treatment, every other week. Um, but from talking to him and looking at it, most of the stuff that I was able to find were equine studies, equine studies in PRP is huge. Cause I think Brad knows too, horse people spend a lot of money on everything to make their horses better and faster. And the canine studies, some of them, there were, there were, there was a study I remember reading that had like uh, eight, or I'm sorry that, yeah, the canine say they had eight dogs that showed no improvement whatsoever, but then another one with 12 said that all 12 had, had improvement. So like you, they're, the studies are just everywhere. And the, the one thing that I, when I was reading about them for, for the dog treatment, that's, I, I haven't looked into it for humans, so I don't know if it's different, um, was every, every paper that found inconsistency said that they believe it was how the, uh, the, the, the PRP was prepared. And that that's the biggest inconsistency it seemed to be in all the literature was that there's there's no standardization for how they're actually producing this. Yeah. And I, I heard even one researcher saying that maybe it should also include leukocytes into it. I mean, that's that's a good point. But you know, you bring up an interesting point about the canine studies and equine studies, is that there's not much of a placebo <laughs> yeah. that's gonna happen with them. I mean, they're not gonna fake that they got that. Right. So um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Perfect. So let's get to the rest of our questions. And then, Brad, are you frozen or are you just locked in on something? I'm just focused. You're focused. Lightning focused. Uh, all right. Uh, well, I thought maybe we were having a repeat of your tech issues the other day. Oh, God, that was a disaster. That was uh, that was just a long – this has just been a long week in all aspects. Um, let's see. We have – where do we leave off at? The diet break question from Dante? Yep. No. Or we talked about the McConnell taping. I don't even remember – um, so the next question would be, how do drugstore variety knee sleeves oh. compare to taping? Yeah. Yeah. How do drugstore variety knee sleeves compare to taping? Mike? I haven't seen any studies that have compared them. Uh, my own experience is that um, the taping tends to have a more of an acute effect, meaning that in the next 12 you know, hours, I think you feel more relief from it. Um the for a more prolonged effect so like if you're going to be running for a long period of time you're going to be sweating a lot uh the knee sleeve i think would be you know a better option i know when people squat power lifters a lot of them swear by sleeves you know when they're doing that so uh there's nothing against doing both by the way so um if you're not sure which helps um i would do a trial but um having both would work you know, when I'm out on a on paddle boarding or something like that, uh, sometimes I have to kneel. Um, I find the neoprene sleeves work a lot better for that, you know, getting wet. Um, so in that environment, it would be better. Perfect. Uh, somebody from the group said, my daughter had surgery to replace her MPFL. It still hurts going downstairs. Which taping method would you recommend uh, would be best to keep her kneecap in place? That McConnell taping, that's exactly what that would be for. Again, um, I, I would um, shy away from saying that that is going to keep your kneecap in place. Um, we think that controlling for the femur 
at the hip is better at changing mechanics of the knee compared to taping the knee. That being said, taping the knee still may be able to help even if it doesn't quote unquote keep it in place. Uh, but that mechanical taping we were describing earlier, um, the, uh, the medial glide is, is probably the best one. Uh, Dante, remember we don't like you anymore, Dante, because you're a fan of Brad, not of Jay. Um, <laughs> Ambra, Ambra said good morning. Uh, wow, what was what was good morning in Italian, Brad? Buongiorno. Bon. No, that's good. That's like just hello or good day. No, it was something else. There was another word in front of for morning. Uh, here, are the for anybody watching on the video, here is the scoliosis uh, thing from John Hopkins. So if you just uh, turn around the podcast, Hopkins, just search for John. Um, hopkinsmedicine.org and then it's uh method for scoliosis you should be able to find that real quick uh june said my son is 27 was born with with spina bifida l3 level would this process help him for everything we were talking about with scoliosis spina bifida is a um is a much different condition than uh scoliosis i'm not aware of using the schroff method for spina bifida um, so I'm, I'm, that's more on the neurological side of things. Um, so I, I would, I would hesitate to venture into, you know, an opinion on Schroff versus that. I, from what I know, it, it is not been tested or, or used as a treatment for spina bifida. Right. Uh, Facebook user, my husband had PRP on his elbow and it has been great. Well, don't tell him that it might be a placebo effect. <laughs> Because that would ruin it for everybody. <laughs> right. Uh, somebody just got an uh, uh, email from me uh, claiming to be from me. It is, well, I think Brad actually typed that. Typed you it. know what's funny is but it was I, I write all the emails and I schedule them to get sent out. So Yeah, and, and he signs my name to them. And then when people come in with questions or arguments on them, I get to deal with them all. So Brad <laughs> writes them and then I get to, to argue his points that he makes. It's a good strategy. Yeah, I like it when they come back. I, I I do take the compliments though, and I don't forward those to Brad. I only forward the complaints to Brad. That, so that's have reasonable. People, people be like, "Jay, this email is great. I really love your emails." I'm like, thanks. I love writing them. Thanks for reading them. And then <laughs> and then they'll write and then they'll 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 reply back and say, uh, I, "I disagree with this point highly." And I'll just forward to Brad and be like, "You're the worst writer ever." <laughs> I don't get too many of those. I do. That's so you don't forward all of them. I don't forward, forward all of them. I just say thanks have a great day if you'd like a two-week free trial sign up for coaching here you know do you know which which email got the most uh like just hate vitriol back i i I can't remember it now i remember when we were talking it was the one where i reviewed the literature on menopause and weight gain oh yeah um, and determined that there is a minor effect but it's not a major effect Mm -hmm. um and people were very upset about they disagreed strongly with that yeah yeah um, let's see. And then our last question is, are biological treatments for injury different than those that would be prescribed for chronic illness or inflammation? Um, so if somebody like arthritis, so if somebody has. Uh, uh, yeah. So I was uh, just looking into that. Uh, the most common exploration is on hyaluronic acid versus uh, PRP. Um, and it seems like PRP is more effective than hyaluronic acid. But that's not necessarily a great comparison because hyaluronic acid has not found to be very effective. Um, so that's it's definitely being researched into uh, uh, chronic issues. And as far as all the research I've found, it's been on knee arthritis and uh, as chronic knee arthritis. So um, the efficacy still has not been 
proven outright compared to a control or other therapies um, other than hyaluronic acid. So um, again, there's some promise there. Um, and uh, it seems like where the most recent research is looking at its effects on arthritis. So the jury's still out, but at least in comparison to that other type of treatment, it's more effective. Interesting. And would you, the, uh, would, both of you, would you, PRP, I mean, it's not, it's been around for a little while, but it's still in its infancy, correct? Like in, in terms of, uh, of medicine, like it's still evolving pretty rapid from what I've gathered. Is that a fair statement? Or is it, is it pretty well established and this is the therapy and we're just trying to figure out if it works or not? You know, it, I mean, it's, it's, I've heard of it for over 15 years. Okay. Um, I've been aware of it for a while. That's, that's why I'm a little bit more surprised that there's not stronger evidence yet. Um, I mean, it takes a while to figure this stuff out. I mean, well, let's take knee meniscal stain on, on the knee topic, knee meniscus surgeries. Um, that's been available since, you know, the 90s. It's taking um, decades of research to prove that it doesn't work in the majority of cases. The subacromial decompression for shoulders, 30 years has been being done. They're still doing 30,000 procedures a year in England and about 120,000 procedures a year, you know, in Florida alone, uh, in spite of it having strong consensus, it's not effective. So it takes a while for this stuff to be proven effective or ineffective. Um, so in my mind, I guess I'm a little impatient. 15 years, you'd think there'd be more, but um, in the same sense, that's how science works. You know, it takes a long time to definitively prove that something's effective or not effective. Um, yeah. What I'm surprised, though, is that there's not much studies trying to look at are there side effects, are there problems with hmm. And so far, you know, I think treatments, in my mind, get a much broader um, leash if they haven't been proven to cause any problems, you know, I always yeah. say, what, what's the harm of it? Right. Yeah. To establish harm, then, you know, I advise people to, to try it again, as long as they had the resources, you know, to invest in it. Makes sense. You said science is slow. We still have people who think the, the earth is flat. So we, we <laughs> progression sometimes isn't always, isn't always the best. Uh, and then the last comment, uh, would he uh, Witty said, so now I'm a fan of the emails because they're from Brad. <laughs> so we have somebody else who is, uh, look at the big, look at the big ego Brad has now. Look at him. He's just, oh, we, he's smiling too much. Somebody's got to bring him down. Somebody quick, refute a paper he wrote. Yeah, <laughs> you could probably refute all of them, to be honest. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a website, put publication dates of like 2008 on them all and say you plagiarize them all. That You can do that. That's fine. Okay, I will. All right. Well, Mike, thank you as always for coming in. Um, anything else you wanted to close with? No, I think we hit it. Uh, hit a lot of good stuff today. Where can people reach you at? Where's the best way if somebody wants to get a hold of you at? Uh, SpectrumFit.net is a way to uh, reach me, and uh, uh, you can contact me through that. Uh, see any other uh, stuff I've written there. All right, and that is, I have it up on the screen for anybody. No, I don't. I have it up on the screen for the YouTube or for the uh, live broadcast. Anybody listening on the podcast, it's spectrumfit.net, S-P-E-C-T-R-U-M-F-I-T.net. Um, and Mike, you'll be back in two weeks to yeah. uh, talk about something else fun and exciting and makes people cringe when they think about injuries. <laughs> so, Brad, do you have anything you want to say? Nope. All I right. got nothing. 
I think that's it. This is a long episode. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will just talk to everybody on uh, Friday. Friday. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Am I Live, a podcast from Macros Inc. If you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate it. Until next time.